I think it's going to be great. Personally, from what I've seen so far, I think it's going to be great. And if I would say anything, just hold on to it and wait for episode six. That's all I'm going to say. Episode six, you said? Yeah. Hello, Greyhounds. Welcome back to Ted Lasso is Life, the podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Duong. At the beginning, you heard a clip of my interview with Paul Cripps, Ted Lasso's production designer. Back in October, perhaps sensing that the fans were getting a little restless about waiting for season three, he offered that absolute gem of a soundbite. And Paul, you were right. Episode six was definitely worth waiting for. Currently on IMDb, it has a 9.2, which is the highest rated Ted Lasso episode yet. And to break it down with me, as usual, my marvelous co-host, Chrisanne Morgan. Hey, everybody. Hi, Kevin. Hello. So season three, episode six, Sunflowers. It has the Greyhounds in Amsterdam for a friendly with Ajax, but everything is not all right. So Ted invokes no curfew tonight. The team struggles to come to a consensus on what to do, but then they remember what they learned in Liverpool. Rebecca takes a dip while Ted takes a trip. Jamie and Roy bond over bikes and windmills while it's the red light district for Higgins and Will. And Colin finds someone to confide in, to which we say, amen. So, Kersan, given the mass adoration for this episode, what did you think of it? I loved this episode. I was delighted by it from start to finish. And I loved how we got depth and we got forward movement and we had a lot of subplots and storylines that felt really expansive. And then all, it kind of came together. And being a person from the improv world, there are these tent poles that you set in an improv scene. And I felt like they did that. It felt like such an organic improv scene to me. And being that Jason and Brendan, specifically Brendan, because he wrote this episode, really did that where they started, expanded out, and then came back together and wrapped it all up at the end. It felt very much like everything I know about improv. And even though I loved it, I can't say that I loved all of the moments. There were a few things that I didn't love, but mostly overall, I felt like they gave us kind of a good mid-season recap. Like I feel like, okay, we're going to wrap up the first half of this season and we're going to set the stage to move forward. Do you feel the same way about that, Kevin? Do you agree with me? Yeah, it definitely gave us some momentum going into the second half. And How's it been half a season already? I know it's so hard to believe that we're this far through. But I think, too, we didn't get as much of the character development early in the season because they took a little bit of a detour, a little side trip that I don't think moved the plot forward for the characters that we really want to see, like Sam and Colin and Isaac. So I'm glad that they got back on the bicycle, moved it forward. Ted would approve of your pun. <laughs> Thank you. There are so many great moments of wordplay in this episode. It has, it's some of it's my favorite of the season so far. The Aurora Borealis killed me. I loved that. As for the person who said that line, even though Keely was barely in this episode, I do love the callback to make Rebecca great again with the Keely infomercial on the TV. I know. I thought that was great. I love that they dubbed it into Dutch. I thought it was mwah, chef's kiss. I think one of the things I liked the most about the episode is the whole jazz aspect. And jazz is also very improvisational, but I like that they incorporated Let's Get Lost into the episode. And it felt like a thematic touch point to me because everybody kind of got lost and they lost themselves, but then they lost themselves in order to find themselves, which I thought was just beautiful. That was pretty fucking deep. Like Rebecca's phone at the bottom of the canal. <laughs> God, was that just, that was the rom-commiest meet cute I think I've ever seen. I thought it was brilliant. To be honest, I'm, I didn't love this episode as much as most people did. And like I knew for a year almost now that Rebecca was going to fall into the canal. And everyone, myself included, was thinking that the perfect cut to the theme song would be Rebecca falling to the canal, then the yeah from the theme song, but they didn't do that. So just one of many things that kind of bothered me about the episode. I thought the cold open was so packed, though, wasn't it? Yeah, it was like six minutes long. 
there were some big kickers in that opening, none the least of which was Rebecca saying to Roy, Keely was going somewhere that thought they deserved her. And then Roy's general unhappiness and just the Roy Kent of it all, punching the Zava poster in the hallway and his media interview. Wow, so much happened. I liked how this interaction was kind of the opposite for Roy and Rebecca of episode 203, Do the Rightest Thing, when she kind of thanks him for giving her advice about John Wing's night. So now she's kind of re returning the favor about Keeley. I like when they're allied and talking to one another. I think it's a really cool dynamic. And I, I love that she brought up exactly the truth about what he's going through because she nailed him. She basically nailed him right there, you know, because we know that that is the reason why Roy broke up with Keely because he doesn't think he deserves her. I don't know if you have been reading a lot about this online, which I imagine that you probably have, but some people seem really divided about Rebecca's scenes being all about her love life. I don't know about you, but I loved all of the romance. I loved Rebecca's storyline about this. And I don't have a problem with it being about her love life because that's a part of her arc and a part of her journey and development as a person it has so much to do with her wanting a relationship after being so hurt by Rupert and hurt by her breakup. I don't think that it's the only thing about her. I just feel like that part of her life has so much to do with her personal growth. So as you may recall, in episode 201 Goodbye Earl, at the end, when Rebecca breaks up with John Wings night, she says, I need to be brave enough to let someone wonderful love me without fear of being hurt and without fear of being safe. And boy, did she take that shit literally going into some random guy's fucking boathouse. My God. Well, it's a rom-com. So, you know, it's never the way it happens in real life. Thunder and lightning. I mean, clearly what Tish said about thunder and lightning was Rebecca feeling like she had been struck by lightning with this guy. Every moment, it just, it was like every single romantic comedy trope. It couldn't have gotten more rom-com for me. And I'm repeating myself, I realize, but I love that stuff. I ate it up with a spoon. I thought it was just beautiful. And I loved that we saw Rebecca completely out of her element. I mean, falling into a river that's freezing cold, and I wonder how cold that was. I love that we see Rebecca just getting laid out, completely stripped of any of her armor, and just made so vulnerable that it takes her to this place where she just kind of fights it for a second, but then I feel like she embraces it and she's like, all right, I'm here. I'm going to go with it. And the choice of wardrobe that they gave her when after she takes a shower and putting on that floral dress is like the most anti-Rebecca clothing choice that they could have picked for her. I mean, it's a floral dress and you don't see Rebecca doing that open, very feminine, very soft side, but this entire episode just softened her and helped her to make contact with that part of herself. And it was such a beautiful thing to watch. To your point about her appearance, she let her hair down both literally and figuratively. Absolutely. You took the words right out of my mouth. Another note about that dress, some Tadbekistans have wisely cracked that it's the perfect attire for a summer in Kansas. <laughs> it would be the perfect dress for summertime in Kansas. I agree. You mentioned how Rebecca's whole story in this episode was very rom-com-y. And I think the peak of that was when they had that intense look at each other and then to break the silence, the, the dryer dings. So completely rom-com-y. Them singing together, all of the talk. I mean, I think it was pretty funny because they were kind of poking fun at the whole safety issues you know, with the peephole and is she going to get drugged? You know, it's definitely things that are crossing her mind, but this guy is just so wonderful that all of that just melts away in a heartbeat. So you're right. Yes, it's very rom-commy. Sorry, what I was going to say was the most rom-commy thing was when they're both seeing how dry the clothes are and then Rebecca just throws a cup of water back on it so that she can stay longer. 
I thought that was such a baller move. I loved that they had her do this. And I don't know if you noticed this. I perused Paul's set design on his Instagram and I loved the whole houseboat set. Check out the full interview in the show notes. Um, <laughs> I loved that interview with Paul too. I thought it was just wonderful. He's such a wonderful person and seeing his process was really cool. So everybody go listen to that episode. It's a really great interview. But I don't know if you noticed this, but there were three little birds behind Rebecca's shoulder in most of her scenes when you see her talking to him, which I thought was so brilliant. And Paul did that intentionally. He said it on his Instagram. It shouldn't surprise me by now, but still astounded by the attention to detail on this show. Oh, and all of the triangles throughout the entire episode. They were in triangle formation. There were triangles everywhere. But with regards to hot Dutch guy, houseboat, hot houseboat man. Some have called him Dutch Lasso. Others have called him Theo Dutch. Do you prefer either? Theo Dutch. I like Dutch Lasso. And we'll definitely get into the reasons why this man is literally a Dutch version of Ted later on. He's a completely dreamy guy. He's buff. He's very good looking. He can sing. He can cook. He was in the military. He offers her clothing. And the commonality that he had with Rebecca, I mean, they have that connection because they have shared experience too. He made her feel safe enough to open up. And that's really all women want is to feel safe enough to open up because trusting somebody enough to let yourself be seen is such an important thing. And I think it's true for men too. They set the scene so perfectly and all of the elements just came together in this beautiful alchemy that allowed Rebecca to really just be and just relate to him. And that was really such a great thing to watch in Rebecca's development. The thing that I didn't quite like about it was the, I don't know if ambiguous is the right word, but I guess kind of unclear way that he kind of ended it when he said, did we? And then it's like, yes. I think that was really about their soul connection. It was, but what I'll say is there are little people who watch the show having seen Hannah's soul being ripped out of her after receiving the information that she in fact cannot get pregnant, still think that she's going to be pregnant with like Sam or some shit. So for a scene like this, probably confusing them as well. No, I, I took that to mean that he was just saying, yes, we really connected on a deep level. And that was just confirmation of it. Yeah. So to clarify to those who might be confused, he was not talking about sex. He was talking about gazellig. So you mentioned earlier about Rebecca was able to relate to Boatman. Take away the most from this is that when he said, this thing, it didn't happen to me, it happened for me. And I think by meeting him and hearing that, she'll be able to realize that, yeah, Rupert divorcing me sucked, him cheating on me sucked, but it allowed me to meet all these wonderful people from the team and Ted and Beard, etc. So Yeah, it gave her one of her best friends. It gave her so many people and it gave her this family. Yeah, absolutely. It didn't happen to her. It happened for her, which I thought was perfect. I mean, really? That's a dream date. I mean, aside from the falling in the, uh, in the canal <laughs> and losing her phone, like taking a shower, getting clean and comfortable, putting on a beautiful dress, having a handsome man make you dinner. And it looked like he could cook. And rub your feet. And rub your feet and drink wine and they danced. I mean, that's so romantic. And they sang together and he had an amazing voice too. It's literally the most amazing meet cute and first date you could possibly ever dream up. So well done. Well done, Brandon Hunt. <laughs> I want a date like that. Yes, I'm single. Shoot your chakra, Sam. <laughs> So you said you had some comparisons between Dutch Lasso and Ted. So I don't know about you, but I counted one, two, three, four, five, six different things. So first, Dutch Lasso was in the military. And of course, Ted gave Rebecca a little army man. 
Dutch Lasso and Ted both have a child. Very true. Very true. They have both made things that have made Rebecca say, fuck me. I thought that was really funny. Yes. They've both had unfaithful partners. They both love the gambling man, Kenny Rogers. And although it didn't seem like it, Dutch Lasso also has jokes cornier than Kevin Costner's outfield. I'm not bringing his joke to mind. The Alzheimer's joke? Oh, right, right, right. Oh, and he also said, unfortunately, no. When Rebecca asked if his ex had died, that was brilliantly funny. His, his sense of timing was perfect on that. So in case you're not following, what I'm trying to say is they had Rebecca meet Dutch Lasso so that it would open her eyes to the possibility of Ted when the correct moment does arise. Oh, yeah, absolutely. He was completely a prototype. I don't think she's ever going to see him again. Yeah, let's get that out of the way, too. One, they did not even exchange names, let alone numbers. And they couldn't exchange numbers because both of their fucking phones are at the bottom of the canal. I mean, it's really easy to think that, you know, it would be so great for Rebecca to go back and find him. But he is just a prototype. And I'm not saying that just because I, you know, I'm a Ted Becca shipper. So since we're kind of on the topic, another reason why I didn't love this episode was, you may recall when Ted invoked the no curfew tonight, one of his first courses of action was to text Rebecca to hang out. And they could not because her phone fell into the canal. So as you can imagine, I was not happy about that. You know, I, it would have been fun for us to see Ted and Rebecca hang out and have their Ted-Rebecca moment. But I feel like they needed this unfoldment in order to make it better when they come together. I mean, if I had it on my way, they would have Ted and Rebecca discovering each other towards the end of the series and leave it to our imaginations for maybe a movie or something like that. Because I feel like their growth arcs as human beings, it doesn't feel like it's time yet for them to come together. I don't, I don't feel like they're in the right place to connect yet. So I'm not mad about it. Yeah, so initially I was kind of mad about that, but then I saw this great Tumblr post. I'll try to link it in the show notes if I find it again. And essentially saying that even though they seem right for each other, it's not the right time for them. And like this episode was a perfect example of that if Ted hangs out with Rebecca, he doesn't have this epiphany about the triangles and new formation and whatnot. Yeah, absolutely. And Ted's growth spurt in this episode is key to his getting back his sense of self and his sense of purpose. So I'm here for it. And I really liked it. But I'm also one of those people who relishes all of the romantic tension <laughs> between people in workplace comedies. So I think one of the biggest and most impactful journeys that we go on is with Ted. And he took quite the journey. <laughs> he, sh he sure did. And what's so interesting to me is that Ted is conflicted. And I think that is also what's causing the players to not be to, you know, able to come together. There's just kind of this really interesting trickle-down effect that Ted's outlook is having on the entire team. And I think now that he's gone through this finding himself after getting lost in Amsterdam, I think that we're going to see them all kind of really get back on their game and really move forward in a way that is best and free. See, that's where I don't know if I exactly agree because at the end of the last episode, he gave this fucking epic speech and then. I don't know how that translated to a 5-0 friendly loss, so it just didn't really connect for me. Well, I think that Ted's strength is giving great speeches, but Ted's weakness is that he's unsure of himself. He's having a crisis of confidence that is permeating the whole place. You know, I feel like it permeates through the entire club. And, you know, Beard and Royce coaching failures. I feel like Ted's the catalyst and the person who can move everything forward when he was so goal oriented in the first season made a lot of sense. The second season, he still had more of a goal. And then this season, he's just been kind of aimless. 
And I feel like once Ted's back in the game and he's moving forward, you know, he's doing what he feels he's supposed to be doing. I think that the team is going to rocket forward. So when Ted is in the Van Gogh Museum and side note, Brendan wrote a play about Van Gogh. I'm a huge Van Gogh fan. I thought it was beautiful because obviously if you go to Holland, you have to see Van Gogh and you have to, you know, visit the Van Gogh Museum because that's just what you have to do in Amsterdam. But when he's in the museum and he sees the sunflower and he's so transfixed by it because he's he's finding a little piece of himself out in the world reflected back at him when ted said to the docent that the sunflower was the kansas state flower such a beautiful beautiful way to have ted connect with something familiar out in the world to help him kind of understand what's going on But when the docent standing next to him starts to give him this really great Van Gogh quote, and I'll repeat it, one doesn't expect to get from life what one has already learned it cannot give. Rather, one begins to see that life is a kind of sowing time and the harvest is not yet here. Whoa. And then he goes on to tell Ted about Van Gogh and about how Van Gogh had his demons, but they never stopped him from searching for beauty because you find when you find beauty, you find inspiration. And that's only if you stay as determined as Vincent was, you know, and never stop no matter how many failures, because when you know you're doing what you're meant to do, you have to try. And that speech summed up the totality of Ted and where he's at right now and all of the existential questions that are rolling through his mind. You know, and you see that wash over Jason's face and the way that he played it. I mean, he's so expressive and he can tell such stories with his eyes. It was just such a great glimpse into Ted coming together as a whole. For me, that's my take. It's a pretty damn good take. Thank you. Thank you. So essentially, the docent was giving Ted a TED talk. You know, he was basically (laughs) giving Ted that thing that Ted never gets because he's always just giving it. And that's what Ted really needed. Sometimes inspiration comes from the least likely of sources. Very true. I'm sorry, but watching Jason's face trying to drink the tea at first. Oh my God, that man is a funny man. And that was a funny line. It's like hiding poop inside of a barf smoothie. I'm a beer and Sour Patch man myself. Another callback with the Sour Patch Kids. Yes, of the Sour Patch Kids. So when Ted says that he just needs to open his mind, and think about things in a different way. You know Beard was waiting forever and ever to get Ted to do this with him. Over the years, it it seems just so obvious that Beard being who he is, jumps on the opportunity to take Ted on a trip with him. So another one of the reasons why I didn't love this episode was, I'm not a big fan of the whole getting high trope, but on Twitter, a fan named Lex Loudermilk said that she almost had like the exact same journey that Ted did. She was tripping on acid, went to a Van Gogh exhibit, and then in doing so, it helped her realize that fear was holding her back, and then it allowed her to re-express her creativity. I love that. I mean, they do say, you know, that even microdosing a hallucinogenic like a mushroom is really good for your mental health because it kind of resets things for you. Although I just want to clarify that uh, we are not advocating the use of drugs, and that's just more of a little anecdote to say that what Ted went through actually can kind of happen. But it was interesting to me that then it's revealed that it was a dud badge. So Ted really just changed his own mind without even really experiencing the effects of a hallucinogenic. There are some various theories to what did happen to Ted. Some people have said that because Beard and definitely Kenneth are a lot more into these things that 
even a small dose for them might not even register, but for a first time user like Ted, then it could be quite the experience. Oh, absolutely. That would seem logical. Although the funnier theory is just that that's just what T does to Ted. I loved how cathartic it was. And I loved all of the things that they surrounded him with Chicago and the Bulls and Chance the Rapper and, you know, Nate swinging through on a vine with a terrible, terrible American accent, which I'm sure was for effect. When she handed him the Arthur Bryant's barbecue sauce, I loved that. I thought that was so beautiful and wonderful because it's the best. I loved watching Ted in creative mode. I loved watching Ted kind of bust through and get so inspired by the game itself because I also feel like the inspiration that came to him in the Van Gogh Museum then just kind of opened up this whole beautiful idea of the triangle theory and the total football theory that Ted kind of came up with and getting inspiration from that Bulls game that he watched with his dad. I am a person who grew up in Chicago who got to see the Bulls during that era and it was electric watching them play. The feel of the stadium was just completely amazing and just being present for that and watching that game. What a what a great thing to kind of inspire Ted to come up with this great new strategy that might bust them through this rut. Quote unquote new as Beard inferred. I also really enjoyed that both Ted and Rebecca were kind of out on their own without their people. I mean, obviously Rebecca wasn't really alone, but she didn't have Sassy. She didn't have Ted. She didn't have her phone. So she had nothing familiar. And Ted was also kind of out on his own without anything familiar. He didn't have beard. He didn't have the club. He didn't have Rebecca to hang out with. So they basically just went out into the world together alone. And really nobody else in this episode did that. So there's another Ted and Rebecca commonality. I'm really looking forward to seeing how this unfolds with Ted's new strategy and for him to not give up and, you know, to stay as determined as Vincent and to hang on to that inspiration that he found. I think I'm actually more interested into what his notebook said when it read Try Angels. Yeah. I wonder what that means or if that was just the musings of uh, a guy who's tripping. I do love that we got to kind of get a glimpse into Beard's getting ready procedure with the eye care patches under his eyes as he brushed his teeth. I thought that was very adorable. I relate to Beard so hard when it comes to restaurant views. If it's under four stars, like you have to do a lot of arm twisting to get me to go there. I don't think Ted is that discerning. And I think Ted is just really homesick and wanted to go and find familiarity. I think that choice was just indicative of Ted's being homesick. So I think that the writers gave us the couple that we didn't know we needed, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. For all the youngins like me, you have to explain what that is. Ah, well, when Roy and Jamie are riding the bikes and they play Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head, that was actually written for a bicycle scene in the movie Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. I think when Roy isn't just being a grumpy old shit, I think that he actually enjoys Jamie. And who? how could he not enjoy Jamie? He's turned this really fun corner into being this completely exuberant, slightly eccentric, terribly coiffed, though. I gotta say, what they're doing to do Phil Dunster's hair as Jamie is just wrong. I think the thing I appreciate the most is that they haven't turned this into some sort of a weird Keely love triangle. There's still time. Make it a quadrangle. But I do love that when Roy finally says to Jamie that he thinks that Keely has a girlfriend, that Jamie really just doesn't say anything about it and says, let's, let's go find a windmill. I thought that was just lovely. And all of Jamie's talking about the city, I thought was wonderful. I like brainy Jamie. I like, I like the Jamie that knows things and is exuberant and enthusiastic about things. What are you thinking about Jamie and Roy? I just love the growth of this bromance. Like, granddad turned from a derogatory term in season one that caused a literal fight between the two. And now it's the exclamation to start on a fun biking journey. Like, 
And can we talk about Brett Goldstein's just hilarious physical comedy? Just like falling over on the bike and not moving, just tipping over and staying completely stationary on the bicycle. So seeing two characters who were so, so opposed and against one another and not willing to, to reach across the divide to them now and to Jamie for Jamie mentoring and teaching Roy how to ride a bike. It's just such a beautiful symbiotic relationship that I love because I do feel like Roy needs Jamie as much as Jamie needs Roy. Since we didn't have an episode last week, I didn't get a chance to say this, but overall, I wasn't a fan of the whole Zava storyline. But since it gave us the Roy and Jamie bromance, I'll, I'll let it slide. It really did give us the Roy and Jamie alliance, and I, I appreciate it so much. I'm glad that we're going down this road with them. To the windmills. For granddad. So another unlikely alliance that I'm so glad that they're giving us is Trent and Colin. I've wanted so much to have more from Colin. And I love James Lance. He's such a wonderful actor. And I'm so enjoying getting to see more of Trent Krim in this episode. And I've read some things online where people were saying that Having Trent also be gay, which I totally thought would happen. I didn't realize how they were going to make that work with the fact that Trent has a daughter, but I feel like they folded that in perfectly. I really like that Colin has somebody there with him so that he also has a sense of belonging and an ally, especially being in a sport that isn't really very open to queer people. And I do love that Trent Cram has Colin's back and is there to kind of be a touch point and a friend through something that I think is emotionally difficult as Colin reveals in their conversation. I also really like that they decided to kind of tie in Dr. Sharon, even though we don't get to see his visits with her, but him talking about wanting this double life to come together and be his only life and be able to do all of the normal things that straight people get to do out in the open. And then he has this ache that he doesn't have that and realizes, he said, I know that we can't soothe all of our aches, but he just wants to be able to kiss somebody when they have a victory the same way all of the straight guys can on the team. And I have to say, my heart was so touched when he made had that speech, I thought it was just so lovely and so bittersweet, which is something I think Ted Lasso does really well. They do that underpinning of bittersweetness for different things. They do it so well. And I also really love that they're addressing this for Colin and letting us see a little bit more into his story, into who he is. So I'm excited to see where the, you know, where it goes. And I I really hope that they give us Colin coming out to his teammates and have that be kind of a story. And you know what? I don't feel like it would be pandering or anything like that. I just think it would be lovely to have Colin have a happy ending. I did really enjoy the Anne Frank reference too. You know, we can't really compare their experiences because they're so vastly different. The sense of isolation and being hidden, I thought was kind of a lovely little nod. I agree with you that the whole scene was really well done. And to your point about Dr. Sharon, it's great that they're kind of weaving her in without being able to show her. And another great example is last week when Ted was able to kind of stave off a panic attack on his own because of the breathing techniques that Dr. Sharon. Yeah, I miss Dr. Sharon a lot this season. And I hope that they weave her back in a little bit more, actually because I think she was such a great glue and a great stabilizer. Since we're talking about Colin, I also loved another callback. There are so many callbacks in this episode, but with him ordering the vanilla vodka, because the scene where Roy calls Jamie out for it, of course, he headbutted Colin right before that. So, Yes, that was a great callback. All of the callbacks. And the crazy thing is, is that when you read reviews, I feel like the show is getting panned for being too self-indulgent and doing all of the things that we love about the show. 
And I just kind of want to tell the critics to be more curious and less judgmental. I mean, I guess that's their job, but I just don't understand why that's not more universally beloved because the layers to me are just needed and necessary and very well done. So this brings us to Higgins and Will who go on a pilgrimage together to the red light district where Will is going to become a man. And I just thought it was so fun and funny that everybody was like, ah, nah, <laughs> they kind of raise their eyebrows and they know that Higgins isn't really going to the red light district for the things that most people or Van Damme want to go to the red light district for. And instead he's in search to celebrate his hero, Chet Baker. And I love so much that jazz is often so much of a punchline in comedy that they're actually celebrating it in this episode, which I love. It's wonderful. When Will asked Higgins if everything was okay at home, I thought that was just such an amazing deadpan delivery on the part of Charlie. I was so good. And then just watching them in the jazz club and Will hushing Higgins because he was so into it. And then just getting to see Jeremy Swift be brilliant and play that stand-up bass so well and be so into it. I just thought it was just a great scene. I mean, it wasn't necessarily integral to move the plot line forward, but again, I'm the person that loves going in depth and taking these little side trips to see more into the lives of the characters that we love. And so I'm so glad that we got to see more of Higgins because as we know, the Higgins, the kind of bumbling Higgins that we see in the office every day at the club isn't necessarily the Higgins that exists inside his mind and in his personal life. And I love that we get to see all of this really cool stuff about him and learn about his life because he's a cool cat, I think. I guess my question for this storyline is, who out there has a close enough relationship with their mom that they would tell them they had a threesome? I know, I loved that. Oh my God, that was hilarious. So I guess Will did really become a man. I thought it was so wonderful. And I hope that we get to see more of Will. He's such a brilliant actor. And those two together, they had so much chemistry. It was good. It was also nice how Higgins was shy to admit that he played bass, but then Will was so excited to tell the musician, oh yeah, he does, he does. And the Chet Baker song, Let's Get Lost, was so beautiful. And it was such a good score to the entire episode. I felt like it was really, you know, a good soundtrack for what was going on. And then watching all of the editing and all of the scenes while he was playing, where they were playing the song, it was just beautiful. I mean, Melissa McCoy really killed the editing through that whole sequence. I mean, the entire episode was just really buoyant and it was really woven together beautifully. And then, we find our boys, our greyhounds, in the hotel lobby, unable to reach consensus about what they want to do, what they want to eat, what they're going to do with their time in Amsterdam. And Isaac just stepped in and took control. And we saw him rise to the occasion of being captain in a completely new and hilarious way. And I honestly loved his speech. We are riven by these crossroads. Is this it? How do we proceed? How doth we channel our lack of compromise, this dissension, this rage? What a speech. I mean, I looked it up to see if it was a Shakespeare quote. It's not. I couldn't find it. So that came out of Brendan Hunt's head. And I love that he gave that speech to Isaac because I just thought it was so brilliant and funny. And the way that he delivered it. I mean, so many chefs kiss. Did you like his little speech? I did, but I wasn't a fan of all the arguing on and on about where to go and then what to eat. Was... Yeah, that seemed a little pointless to me. It kind of seemed like it was just delaying till they delivered us the pillow fight we were promised. Did you see it coming that they would choose pillow fight? You know what? I should have seen it coming because it's a totally logical callback to have in that moment, but I didn't. And then when I when they started fighting, I was like, oh my God, yes. I was just so into the episode that I wasn't really thinking about it. But no, I didn't ex I wasn't expecting it. How silly of me though, right? Me of all people to not expect a pillow fight. <laughs> it was brilliant. I have read some very interesting opinions of people online saying that the the pillow fight was stupid 
one critic actually said, you can do better, Ted Lasso. And I was like, what? It had to be. There's nothing else it could be. There's literally nothing else they could have done in that moment than have a pillow fight. It had to be the thing. I think the writers are contractually obligated to give us that pillow fight. There's been a lot of criticism about critics by the fans. Obviously, fans are very protective of our show, but they feel that some critics aren't really paying attention to all the details as much as they should have. And I think this pillow fight critic is probably exactly one of these. Yeah, I actually commented that. I commented politely that I was like, it had to be the pillow fight. I had to set him straight. <laughs> and I'm sure that they're not watching it. I mean, who knows what they have in their heads, but like, don't, don't write about it if you're not at least going to respect it enough to pay attention to it. And I'm also not a big fan of critics in general because my philosophy is, is that if I'm not out there making a television show or art, I'm not going to criticize people that are. I'm just not going to do that. Negative Nellies, all of them. So for the listeners, if you're wondering why Chrisanne loves almost everything that happens on the show, there's your answer. <laughs> yeah, I'm just, I'm not going to be that critic. On the flip side, I feel like I'm allowed to be critical because the show has won a shitload of Emmys. So I think it's fair to say that there's a high standard to meet. Yeah, there's definitely talking about the things that you like. I mean, I do say that I don't like certain things. Like I didn't dig certain plot twists we've had along the way. And I didn't, I just said that I didn't necessarily like all the arguing. I'm not just a one note Sally. I'm not just being Pollyanna over here. I have a critical eye. <laughs> but I thought the way that they did the pillow fight, that they got suited up and they wore their practice kits the second team little jerseys that they wear, little smock things and the headbands. I thought it was great. What was it that Isaac dropped? What was the pink thing? I've never taken part in official pillow fights, so I'm not quite sure. I actually did. Back in Los Angeles, there was uh, a big giant pillow fight in the park, I think in 2008, and that was really fun. So on a slightly related note, besides the pillow fight, which of the options would you have gone with? I would have been on the train with Jan Moss to his cousin's all-night party because I'm that person, especially if there's breakfast in the morning. I was going to say, probably the unsung heroes of the whole Greyhound storyline was probably the servers. They had a bit of personality to them. They did. They were so great. I really liked that they were allies and that they sat and they watched the pillow fight and that little couple scurried away out of fear. And I think they were just in the lobby, no? They were just in the hotel lobby having a massive pillow fight, pill feathers everywhere. I would have picked the same option as Jan Maas because Martin Garrix was probably one of my most listened to artists during the lockdown. He has a lot of bops. Nice. I'm not familiar with him, but I am going to check him out now. So I wonder if they will, in fact, just only do pillow fights from here on out forever when there's a team night together traveling. Well, it's, that's what Ted predicted. The sad thing about the whole thing is that Ted wasn't there to witness it. That makes me a little bit sad, but he'll hear about it and he'll be happy. Or he might actually even see evidence of it. That's possible too. I wonder if they were able to get up all the feathers from the hotel lobby. No, that's what I'm referring to. The beautiful scene at the end where they're all on the bus singing, Three Little Birds. You'll see Sam cough and then there's like some feathers that come out. That's so brilliant. I'm going to have to watch it again with my assistant. She hasn't seen the episode yet, so I'll watch out for that. And then there was also... Colin kind of touching Trent on the arm as soon as the lyrics said everything is going to be all right. And then when we get all the way to the front where Higgins and Will are sitting, you see Will doing some like air stand-up bass. So just perfect scene all around to end that episode. Yeah, it was such a great ensemble scene. So heartwarming and so cheerful and just a spirit lifter. I also loved how Rebecca was the one that started the song when at the very beginning of the episode, she said, God, this song's depressing. Yeah, she definitely took a journey. She got opened right on up and she kind of let some of her armor go, I feel like. You know, she left it on the side of the canal. Like those lyrics, don't worry. She had the most worry-free face I've seen in the entire series for her. She was a woman transformed. That foot massage must have done wonders for her. <laughs> <laughs> she literally just kind of just took a breath and relax. So beautiful. And Hannah just played the whole thing magnificently. And now it's time for our favorite part of the podcast, the awards.
Chrisanne and I are both nice people, and we love Ted Lasso. So each week we give out awards in a variety of fun categories. First up, MVP. 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 I'm dying to hear what your MVP is, but my MVP is Dutch Lasso. He shepherded our girl through an amazing night. Was so kind. Was so wonderful. He was basically a dream date. He made her feel so good and warm and loved, even though. They had just met. He took such great care of her, and I feel like moving forward, a happier, less obsessive Rebecca is going to benefit everybody around her. I don't want to speak for all women, but I think he created new, a new kink for some of y'all. That's <laughs>、uh, not new, honey. <laughs> As for my MVP, is going to one Trent Crim. In their scene by the Anne Frank house, it was clear that Colin was holding on to this secret for. Possibly a long time, but definitely weighing him down a lot, and being able to just have one other person to talk to and understand what he's going through really just lightened the load for him a lot. Well, shared burden is always so much better, right, than carrying something on your own. And then a bit of an MVP to the writers and creators. I saw several tweets saying how important the scene was, and it was relatable to a lot of people since. There's a decent amount of fans that are LGBT, so it's great that they have something that is representative for them in media. Heck yeah! I mean, as the parent of an LGBTQ child, that representation is so important. Seeing that on the screen is really good, really valuable, especially with everything going on in the world right now with regards to that, especially in the states. And for the other side of the spectrum, the wanker of the week. Let's see what we got here. Wanker. Okay, my wanker is really more in jest. I'm calling out Van Dam. <laughs> He would not let the sex show thing go. I was like, "All right, Terry, just let it go, pal." So another way to phrase it is, he's a wanker for wanting to see some wanking. Exactly. <laughs> Took the words right out of my mouth, Kevin. As for mine, I was originally give it to Jamie for laughing at Roy for not knowing how to ride a bike. Especially since Roy had a pretty damn good reason, but then I thought of another thing Jamie said when he was enough of a prick to divert an entire flight. I know Roy has called him the Prince Prick of all pricks, probably for the alliteration because it's damn good. But that is way above Prince level. That's like King level type prickness. I like it. I agree. I, I think that's a very sound choice on your part. But for some reason. I enjoy when Jamie is a prick. I think it's just really funny because I think Phil Dunster all, always all makes Jamie so lovable and relatable. He brings that humanity to the part that not everybody has the skill to do. Shout out to Phil Dunster, man! Another gifted lad. Our next award celebrates proficiency in profanity, excellence in expletives, virtuosity in vulgarities. It's the Roy Kent Cussing Award. Fun. That's fun, isn't it? It's pretty hard to top Roy Kent at his own game, and so this week, once again, I am awarding it to Mr. Roy Kent himself during his interview when he has his speech about everything. You're pretend. This is a pretend thing, and I'm having a really hard time giving a shit about it. Exact same winner. An exact same line when he says, "I'm having a really hard time pretending to give a shit." Like I'm sure we can all relate to some conversations we've been in where we don't want to be part of anymore. So definitely very relatable. And now for the "You're Gonna Make Me Cry" award, there were a couple of moments that really, really got me. I'm gonna say that it was the scene with Ted in the museum with the docent for me. Stop stealing all my answers, Chrisanne. Well, this is really good though because we're on the same wavelength. Watching Ted take that in and seeing him realize that he was in the right place, doing the right thing, and that he didn't—he shouldn't give up—and watching Ted just feel it and the emotions running through him that he just so beautifully displayed on his face, I got teary-eyed because our Ted is on this. Journey of self-discovery and self-acceptance, and you got to see him in real time have a breakthrough. The I've always funnier than stepbrothers. The award. I feel like we probably have the same answer for this one as well. 
the line that got me the most that really tickled me was Jan Ma saying, well, our spirits were already broken in his interview. That got me. It was more of an appreciation about how clever and funny that was. I did laugh and there were moments I laughed out loud, but for me, that was the line that really just kind of just so brilliant and so Dutch. I thought for sure you're going to pick the, the bike riding scene. Oh my God. Yes. Can I change my answer? Cause yeah, the, the whole bike riding scene and the physical comedy, just Roy, just holding completely still on a bike and just letting himself fall over and not trying to save himself. Use the pedals. And then I love how to try to motivate him to be able to do it. Jamie's like, oh, try to hit me. And then when Roy actually gets the hang of it, he fucking barrels toward him. He's like, I'm going to fucking kill you. <laughs> oh, those two together make my heart happy. I feel like I've been saying this every week for Phil Dunster, but please give that man an Emmy nomination this year. On Instagram, I wrote that it was the funniest scene of the season so far and probably one of the funniest for the entire series. And a lot of people seem to agree. And now for the award that's all about fashion. She's fucking fat! It's Rebecca in the beautiful floral sundress from Zimmerman. I loved watching her go on that journey and she's always dressed so fiercely and so corporate warrior woman. So very hard, you know, bold and hard that watching her be so comfortable in a gorgeous flowy dress and stepping outside of herself was beautiful. And last but not least, since I'm a writer and I love Ted Lasso, Kevin's kick-ass line of the week. Ted has had some pretty awesome puns throughout the entire series, but I think this might be one of the best. When Beard asks him, only you can get these guys out of their pineapple percussions, and the answer was Chrisanne. Doldrums. It was brilliant. All right, now it's time for added time, where we give you some random things about the episode that we really love. Technically, this wasn't part of the actual episode, but one of the behind-the-scenes photos that Jason took for Phil. Phil's sitting down, and then Brad is standing up holding two coffees, and somehow I turned that into an album cover and one of my favorite memes ever, so I'll link that if you haven't seen it yet. One of my favorite things was the musical theater reference. I love that they tie so much musical theater into everything, and when Ted goes into... Uh, the Yankee Doodle Burger Barn, and they sit him and they offer him, you know, his choice. And he said, tell Mama Roxy Hart is coming home. Lipshit. I have no idea what that reference was. The musical Chicago, because he was sitting in the Windy City section. So we're speaking about amazing wordplay. Another great pun they had in this was Thunder Dong. <laughs> Thunder Dong was very funny. So for those who don't know, it's a pun on Thunder Gong, which is, I think, an annual concert held by Steps of Faith Foundation, which helps support amputees, and Jason, Brendan, help contribute by performing. And I think there's a famous clip I'll link where it's Jason as Ted singing Guns N' Roses' Patience. I know I mentioned this earlier in the episode, but one of my favorite little layered in things was all of the triangles and all the references in the scenery like Trent Krim and Colin sitting on a big pink triangle. There were triangles everywhere in the episode that were referenced. And then in the houseboat decor, there were two little groupings of three little birds that you got to see, which I thought was just absolutely beautiful. Multi-layered, the entire visual experience of the show was and all of the triangles that you saw throughout the episode. It's just really cool. It's so meta. So you mentioned Trent. A lot of people loved his uh, leopard print shoes this week. I love those shoes. I thought they were really good. If I could give out awards to everybody for how fit they were, I would totally have awarded the shoes. And then last week he had that uh, rainbow-colored Snoopy mug. Layering it all in there. So even though, as I said, I wasn't a fan of the whole Ted tripping thing, there were a couple of funny moments, and one of them being... When they're watching Ted kind of go crazy with the notebook and the servers, one of them is like just complaining about how their manager Derek sucks. And of course, the manager at Taste of Athens is named Derek. I guess Derek is like the Karens of managers or something. <laughs> Derek's are all crappy general, general managers of restaurants throughout the UK and Europe. Another one of my hilarious, like the moments that I thought was so funny was on the bus when Ted guesses that Beard is Piggy Stardust and he says, rashers to rashers, oink to oinky. 
my God. It's just so silly and fun. So back to Ted Tripping, I think in season one, he says something along the lines of, if God didn't want ties, then she wouldn't have invented numbers. And then during the tripping, he says something about God, like dropping something to create the triangle. And then the voice is of a woman. Yes. And then in the credits, God as herself. <laughs> exactly. And now to end the podcast with a little treat, since Sunflowers was so epic, I had to bring on a Dutch Ted Lasso fan to tell us about her experience watching them film the episode. So welcome to the show, Elena. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much for joining us, especially since I think you said you're just fresh off a trip from Belgium and it's like 1130 at night for you. That's right. I got home a couple hours ago, but I'm happy to be here. Thanks so much and we appreciate the dedication. So as I mentioned at the outset, Elena was in Amsterdam for when Ted Lasso was filming the Sunflowers episode. So I guess maybe start off by telling us about how you found out that they were going to be filming and what was your reaction like? Okay, so I actually found out through Twitter that there were some cast members and crew members in Amsterdam. And obviously at that point, I had no idea what was going to happen that week um, until the very next day when there was a video circulating of Hannah filming the scene of her falling into the canal. And I'm a very big fan of the show. I would say it's definitely my favorite one in the world. So I thought I could go and see what's happening, you know, see if I can go and check out what they're doing. <laughs> so that's what I did. So what was it like seeing that infamous Rebecca falling into the canal scene live? It was very surreal. Actually, I was standing a little bit further away from the scene, so, so I wasn't able to see the full thing. It was very cool to, you could just see Hannah walking and, you know, talking as Rebecca on the phone to Sassy. When she was talking, just make a little movement of almost falling over. <laughs> over the bridge and in the end we got to see the sun double actually fall into the canal and at that point there was no context to the scene so <laughs> it was very odd what's going to happen but also very very cool to see so for some of the pictures that circulate online hannah's wearing like this giant full-length canada goose like winter jacket and of course i'm canadian i was like well that's like pretty heavy duty so my question is how cold was it that day? It was pretty cold. I wasn't wearing my winter jacket, but that was a horrible mistake because it was actually quite cold, especially at night. And from what I'd heard, because I hadn't been there the whole day, but I heard they were there uh, for quite a long time filming that scene. So I can imagine that she was really cold and, you know, got all bundled up for it. Well, I respect her for representing Canada with Canada Goose. So what were some of the other scenes that you were able to see? That same night, I got to see the scene of Will and Higgins walking outside when they're talking about Chet Baker. And other scenes that I got to see later that week were Roy and Jamie running on the bridge. So that's a scene where Jamie uh, is shouting, world famous skinny bridge. We got to hear that a lot of times, which is great. Especially with his great accent. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> It was funny because we actually thought he was saying something else. <laughs> the accent's so strong, you couldn't tell what he was saying. At some point we figured out, oh, he's on the skinny bridge. He's saying world famous skinny bridge. Oh, yeah. And a little bit of the Jamie teaching Roy how to ride a bike. Uh, we saw a little bit of that scene, too. Pretty cool. We got to see, in my opinion, at least, one of the best and funniest Ted Lasso scenes of all time. I agree. It's also one of my favorites. It's so good. Like Brett has said so many times, like, Every time him and Phil are in a scene together, they make Apple lose like millions of dollars because they laugh all the time. So I really don't know how they kept a straight face throughout all of that. I wonder too. I wonder too. And I can imagine they had so much fun with that particular scene. So I wish we could have seen a little more of it, but it was already great that we got to see even a little bit. So not only did you see scenes from the episode, you were actually lucky enough to meet some of the cast as well, right? Yes, that's right including the main mustache man himself, Jason Sudeikis, and you even gave him a gift. I did. What'd you give him? I gave him an orange bucket hat, which would probably give you a little bit more context for. The day that I got to meet him was actually the day before King's Day. And King's Day is a day where we in the Netherlands celebrate the birthday of the king. 
and it includes everyone partying, wearing lots of orange. And I know that Jason is quite a big fan of bucket hats, or at least I've seen him wearing them quite often. So I saw an orange bucket hat at the station and I figured how funny would it be if I were to meet him and actually give him, you know, something for King's Day, something to wear for King's Day, in this case, in the form of a bucket hat. I did get to meet him that night and give him it. And I think he liked it. I don't know if he wore it, but either way, I, I'm just, I was really happy to be able to just give it to him. So what was his reaction like? Like, did he laugh because he knew about the bucket hat joke? <laughs> Honestly, I was very nervous and it felt very surreal when I saw him for the first time in real life. So I had a hard time, you know, in the moment figuring out what his reaction was, but he did smile and I, people around me said he liked it. So I, I would like to think he did. So most people are lucky if they meet Jason once. You met him twice. Yeah, so I met him on the night when they were filming at the Van Gogh Museum. That's when I gave him the bucket hat. And I was also very lucky to meet him on the night of the scenes of Roy and Jamie. And that was actually when I got to talk to him, thank him for the show, which I still can't believe. I'm very happy that I was able to do that. And yeah, we talked a little bit about Amsterdam because I knew he had a connection with it. It was really great. I'm very grateful for that moment. Did you give him any restaurant recommendations? Maybe Yankee Doodle Burger Barn? <laughs> I did not. I did not. Um, but maybe I should have. <laughs> and then you also met other cast members as well, right? Yes. I got to meet Hannah and Brett and also David, who plays Jan Maas. I didn't meet James Lance, but he passed by, but I was just too nervous to approach him. Because he's, he's just that cool, right? He really is that cool. He really is that cool. So, <laughs> On a previous episode, I said that if vibes was a word, it would be Trent Krim. <laughs> it's so true. That's so true. But yeah, it was great to even see him from afar. And, and lastly, I got to meet Bill Dunster, which was also amazing. He's such a kind guy. So I guess a couple of questions for that then. Was Hannah as tall as you expect in real life or like even taller? She was even taller. I know they say that Dutch people are very tall, but I am not. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe she was even taller to me for that reason. But I actually first saw Brett. Then I knew that there was a tall blonde woman walking next to her, but it didn't register to me that it was Hannah. And once we turned around, I, I was like, oh my God, <laughs> that's <laughs> Hannah. So then for Brett, was he more in Brett mode, all smiley, or more Roy Kent mode and kind of like stone-faced? He was more in bread mode, I would say. He was wearing an orange shirt, I think, for King's Day or King's Night. So I complimented him on it. He smiled, and I know Roy smiles too every now and then. But <laughs> but I felt like, yeah, he was in bread mode at that night. Also, he wasn't wearing all black. That's probably a giveaway too. <laughs> exactly. So you obviously have much more of a personal connection to this episode than most fans being around for the filming and meeting people from the show. So considering the pretty lengthy wait, I think almost a year after it happened, did Sunflowers ultimately live up to your expectations? Yes, I would say it even exceeded my expectations, honestly. Like being there for filming, it kind of gives you an idea of what's going to happen, or at least that's what you think. And it was so funny to me when watching the episode because... I felt like I knew in a way what was going to happen, but all in all, I've probably seen maybe only 10 minutes of what was in the episode and, and actually seeing it come together on screen. And, you know, I actually loved all the, like the little journeys that the characters go on in this episode. It was amazing. And also, of course, you know, the little tidbits for us Dutch people where they're speaking Dutch, or the the boat guy singing which I know is a Kenny Rogers cover, but still. So is that a popular song in, in Holland? Very much so, yeah. It's sung by Andre Hasses, which is actually a, an icon here. So so that was not that was not a lie. It was true. Well I can see why he took such great offense to Rebecca's calling him like what random Dutch bloke or whatever. A little. A little. So on that topic, to kind of wrap things up, Boatman said gazelle a lot during his scenes. So do Dutch people actually say gazelle that often as he does? 
I mean, we do say Gisela, but we don't say it that often. But I have caught myself these past days <laughs> saying it more than once. Uh, and we use it a lot just in social situations. So when we're just in France, just go, we just go, oh, it was very Gisela. But also when we're having fun, like, oh, Gisela. I realized we do actually say it a lot. <laughs> yeah, it was one of the many things that actually made me feel like it we had a, it had a great connection to Amsterdam and language and culture and yeah I know that Amsterdam is very important to history of that lasso and also the creators Jason Brendan and Joe Kelly it's really felt like a love letter to Amsterdam in my opinion you could really feel that connection that they have to the city and that's what I loved so much about it well, I'm glad to hear that you loved the episode so much and that you had such a great time watching them film and meeting the stars from the show. Thank you so much for talking to me at almost midnight time in Holland. So thanks again for everything, Elena. And that concludes our episode for today. Thank you very much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, we greatly appreciate it if you could follow, rate, and review. It's the easiest and free way to support us. Be like Ted and give us a five-star certified fresh review. And for more of my content, follow me on Instagram at Ted Lasso is Life. I'm the most comprehensive Ted Lasso page out there with videos, news, fun facts, analysis, and of course, memes. Until next time, Greyhounds, onward, forward.